Judges chapter 19 through 21. There's three chapters there. Turn with me to page 220. Uh, This is a messy one. I would say this. If you're talking about video games, this is rated M for mature. Uh, If you're talking about movies, uh, this would be probably might even skip the R rating and jump right to X, to be honest with you. Uh, This is not a story that you likely caught in your Sunday school class. Those of you who may grew up going to Sunday school as a kid, um, this is one I'm going to take a stab in the dark that they didn't cover this one uh, on your felt graph and your felt boards with little guys moving around. This is probably... Probably got missed there. Um, the other thing I'll mention too, as you read through this story, the thing that's fascinating that I jumped out at me this week is uh, there's no names. This entire thing goes through with only one name, actually. His name is Phineas. Uh, he's one of the high priests uh, in the Levites. is the only guy that's named in this entire story. I think that is done intentionally because as the story is given, it's, I think, allowing the nation of Israel, this would have been delivered to, and us for present day, to kind of maybe see ourselves in some of this story. And it's also to say, hey, this is, this is we've been talking about judges. They do right. And, uh, there's no king. They do right in their own eyes. Uh, so this is kind of saying this is what life looked like in the nation of Israel in a lot of ways. So here's what I want to do. I want to tell the story Um, I want to read parts of it to you, and then I want to really push in with one point that caused me great consternation this week as I read it. But here goes the story. The story goes, there's a Levite. A Levite is is kind of the representation of the people to God. He has a concubine. Now, this is fascinating within itself because a Levite being a priest, having a concubine is like, what? I mean, it shouldn't line up. Now, some of you sit here and say, what's a concubine? A concubine, in in modern-day terms, would be like a second-class wife. Uh, it, is a, it is a wife. You're going to read, you read the story. She's actually called his wife throughout it. So he is a wife. There is marriage there, if you will. Um, but in that sense, she's second class and that she's kind of brought in not out of a, a covenant relationship, but more out of a, a, someone there to fulfill sexual desires and needs and um, also someone to bear children and have children uh, for for the, for the man. So there's this concubine, and she is, it says in the text, unfaithful in one translation. Another translation says she just leaves and goes home. Uh, so it could be she had an affair, but the, marriage was not going well. We do know that. So she heads back to dad's home. So she gets to dad's home. Now, the thing that's important to understand is in the, the law in that day is when she would come home, dad would say, uh-uh, honey, you are now given to your husband. You need to go back to his home. Um, a a father in that day who would not have done that would be guilty of violating the law and would put himself in jeopardy. But he brings her in. For whatever, the text doesn't say why. She comes in. She's there for four months until the priest finally says, okay, I'm going to get my wife. She, he heads down um, to town where his, where his father-in-law would be. He knocks on the door. His father-in-law welcomes him in. I'm here to get my wife. I want to go, home, want to go back. The father-in-law says, oh, why don't you just hang out a while? Just stay with us. Let me, let me serve you some food and lay out some drink. And so uh, the guy's like, no, 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 I'm here to get her and we're heading home. And, and the father-in-law kind of pushes in and says, oh, this would be so, let's just hang out. So they hang out. Um, so the next day comes and he says, okay, I'm going, no, 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 just hang out for another day and let, let me serve you and let me feed you and offer you some drinks. So they go through this for five days. On the fifth day, um, the, the, he's like, with resolve, I need to go. And the father-in-law is like, no, 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 just hang, just hang one more day. No, I need to go. No, here, here's, I laid out the food. So they sit down to eat. The day kind of gets going and he finally says, no, I have to go. But by this point, 
of the story, a lot, a significant chunk of daylight has gone. So now they've got to push and push hard to get back to their hometown before the sun set. So they set out. It's, it's uh, the Levite, his servant, and his concubine, and a donkey. They're heading, they're heading down. The sun's beginning to set. The, the servant says, hey, we're not going to make it back. And it's not safe. If we we got to find some place to stay. There's a town right there. So we got to go. And, and the Levite says, no, no, no. We cannot do that because they're not our people. Now, we could preach a whole message on this one. The, 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 matter of fact, I looked at a lot of commentaries, and they'll go down this road of how prejudice and, and um, racism and plays in in this story in an, in an ugly way. But he, but it, but he says, now, they're not our people. Let's push past them, and just past this town is a town of our people, our tribe, our, the, the tribe of Benjamin. We're a fellow Israelite group of people. So, okay, okay. So they, they push back. They get into town right before sunset. They come into this. They knock on doors, and in that day and age, hospitality is a really big deal. So in that day and age, in essence, and then you still have this in a lot of the Middle Eastern cultures today. So if I would come and knock on your door, it would almost be, it would be incredibly rude of you not to bring me in as a stranger. But no one brings them in. This is sign one that there's a problem in this town. Can't get, so they have no Holiday Inn Express anywhere. So they go and they hang out in the town square. As they're hanging out in the town square, an old guy, it says, because coming in from work, he's coming from work to head home. He comes through the town square. He sees them sitting there and he's like, oh, this is not good. He goes over to him and says, you guys cannot stay the night here. The last place you want to be is in this town square at night. So come home with me. Come, come stay at my place. So they come back to his place. They're there for a little while. The sun sets. Knock on the door. A whole group of men is outside the door. And the, the, the old guy comes. He opens the door. He's like, what do you guys want? He goes, listen, we know you've got some visitors with you. Bring them out so we can have sex with them. Now, keep in mind, he doesn't want the female. He doesn't want, they don't want the concubine. They want the, the, the Levite and his servant. The guy says, no, 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 you can't do this. This is wicked and evil. Please, you cannot. These are my guests. So here's where the story gets crazy. Now, in our East, our Western current modern day minds, this is just mind, but we're like, what in the world? You've got to kind of somewhat read this. It's still sick. I, I, it's still messed up. But you've got to read this through the, the culture of that day of hospitality. For you to violate a stranger in your home is, is like cardinal sin. One, you just don't do it. But the, the guy says, no, no, no. Take my virgin daughter instead. Instead of the strangers I have in my home. The men begin to, it, it reads, here, let me pick it up for you. This is where I want to read it. I just want to read to you what happened. I don't even want to, this part's just crazy. Verse 25. But they wouldn't listen to him. So the Levite, verse 25 of chapter 19, so the Levite took hold of his concubine and pushed her out the door. The men of the town abused her all night, taking turns raping her until morning. Awful verse. I mean, that alone, just, it, it's sick. Finally, at dawn, they let her go. At daybreak, the woman returned to the house where her husband was staying. She collapsed at the door of the house and lay there until it was light. When her husband opened the door to leave. Now look at this. Because one of the things I want to say is women in this culture are nothing more than an object and property. He goes in and goes to bed. The like, <laughs> good, I'm safe now. I'm going to bed. 
And he gets up the next morning, not with any care or concern for her. He gets up the next morning just to go on his merry way. And there she is when he opens the door. Verse 27, when her husband opened the door to leave, there lay his concubine with her hands on the threshold. I mean, can you picture her? She crawls home after a, a night from hell. She crawls home, and there she, I picture her laying like I'm finally home, reaching for the safety of that home is what I picture. He says, verse 28, get up. Not how are you? Not are you even living? Get up. But there was no answer. Now, this is where the text leaves a lot of gray. The Greek translation of the Hebrew says that she was dead. The Hebrew does not say that. It simply says there was no answer. So we can read into this. Either she was living or she wasn't. We don't know. This comes to bear because of what's going to happen soon. You're like, was she already dead when what happens next happens? Or was she living when what happens happens? All we know is he picks her up. He loads her on, the, on his donkey and heads back to town. I want to pause here and just take one moment. When God is absent, when God is at, you see this. And by this point, God is absent from this culture. The strong oppress the weak. You see it repeatedly in cultures. When God goes away, when God is not central to our hearts, the strong take advantage of those who are weak. And specifically, I want to pause right here and talk to the men in the room. Men, women are more than an object. Women are valuable. They are equal before God, the same as you are. God created us equal. We are like opposite, is the way the text says in Genesis. They're daughters of God, of the king. When we look at our pornographic images, we are treating them as nothing more than an object. When we carry out our sexual desires and don't miss the fact that they're, that they're, a, they're a soul to be cared for, nurtured, and loved, and related to, they're nothing more than an object. Women are valuable, men. I could preach this all day long, but I want to get to the real heart of the text. But what the strong oppress the weak repeatedly. Now, here's where the story gets crazy. So the priest goes home. He's kind of sickened by what happens in a, in a strange way. So he goes home, and this is where we have, I would say, maybe a Quentin Tarantino film breakout. Or uh, when I read this, I think Hannibal Lecter uh, is kind of from my era. Uh, he comes home, and he hacks his concubine into 12 pieces packages her up, and sends her to the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. Now, as the 12 tribes get their, their package and open it up, they're aghast. They're, they're sickened. What is this? So at this point, the text says they're unified. They're more unified than any place. This is crazy. This crime unifies the nation of Israel like we don't see anywhere else in Judges. So they all come together. The priest is, the Levite is there, and they're like, what is going on? So he begins to tell his story. Now look down with me at verse 4 of chapter 20. This is where another very interesting point I could make. It's a little sub-rabbit trail we'll share here. Verse 4 of chapter 20, the Levite, the husband of the woman who had been murdered, said, My concubine and I came to spend the night in Gibeah, a town that belongs to the people of Benjamin. That night, see what's missing from this story. That night, some of the leading citizens of Gibeah surrounded the house planning to kill me, and they raped my concubine until she was dead. Did he lie? Did he tell a lie? No. Everything he said was true. But what did he leave out? This is fascinating. Who sent her out? 
He's the one that kicks her out the door, but he leaves it out of the story. You know, I could preach on this. We could, we could spend the rest of the morning talking about this, how often we paint ourselves and we go to recount stories. Man, we stretch the truth. We hide certain details that make ourselves look rosy, clean, and smelling good. Well, this isn't what happens. Now, because he leaves, I don't know what would have happened if he put that detail in. I don't know if it would have changed the story. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, the, the text, is, all we know is what he does. So the nation of Israel gets really ticked off. They go down to, the, the, they go down to Gibeah. They basically knock on, on the door of the town and say, okay, give us the men who are responsible for raping and abusing and ultimately the death of this concubine, this wife. The town of Benjamin says, no. Absolutely not. They're like, no, we need to purge the evil from the nation of Israel. And the town of, the town of Gibeah says, no, there are men. We, you may not have them. So they regather, they form, and they say, okay, we're going to war, and we're going to wipe them out is what happens. Now, this is where the story for me just gets disturbing. Look at verse 18 of chapter 20. This is what caused me the most tension all week as I studied this. It says, before the battle, the Israelites went to Bethel and asked God which tribe should go first to attack the people of Benjamin. So now God, up until now, God's not in the picture. We don't see God consulted. We don't see God's hand in this. We don't see God talked to. Now God's going to be brought into it. Now, the first thing I'll mention, it's very fascinating, is in chapter 18, they ask God. If you go way back and listen to Pastor Chris from chapter 1. All the way back to chapter 1, verse 1, when God is spoken of, he's spoken of in his covenant name, his most holy name. Here in the Hebrew language, it's just God. This is fascinating. Again, I want to pause here and just ask you, how do you address God? This is where I want, to, want you to see, so we can read this story and think, oh, gross, and we don't see ourselves in the story. This is a place where I think we can see ourselves. How do you address God? You know, when Jesus teaches us to pray, what does he tell us? He says, our Father. Is that who you talk to when you pray? They don't use his covenant intimate name, powerful, mighty, holy. They just say, God. Who do you talk to? I had an opportunity uh, a little while back um, to sit with someone who coached me in prayer. Have you ever, I don't know if you ever had this happen. This was a crazy experience, but I prayed in his presence, and he would listen to me pray. He'd stop and pause and say, Adam, I noticed this. And, I, and so one of the things I noticed is he's, I'm praying. He says, Adam, Adam, I notice you don't use the word father very often. And I stopped and I thought about it. I said, I don't know. I didn't never thought about that. How do you, what do you call God when you pray? You know, I hear some say, oh, Lord, Holy Father. I hear some say, uh, refer to him as a sovereign, righteous king. That's cool. But I said, man, it's missing something. It's missing that intimate covenant relationship. Now, let me push in even deeper here. So now God's brought in, and notice the question they ask. They don't say, should we go? What do they say? Their first question is, which tribe should go, God? God gives them an answer. That tribe goes up and they take a beating. So they regroup. They begin to weep and wail. They sit in the presence of God and they say, okay, God, what tribe is next? So they send the next tribe. They take a beating. The third time they come back before God, look at verse 26. Then all the Israelites went up to Bethel and wept in the presence of the Lord and fasted until evening. They also brought burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. The Israelites went up seeking direction from the Lord. In those days, the Ark of the Covenant... 
was in Bethel. And here's the only guy it's named in the whole story. And Phinehas, son of Eleazar, and grandson of Aaron, was the priest. The Israelites asked the Lord, should we fight against our relatives from Benjamin again, or should we stop? Now here's where I struggle. And the Lord said, go tomorrow, I will hand them over to you. So they head in, they win, and then they commit genocide. They, in essence, wipe out the entire tribe. The only people that are left living are 600 strong warriors who retreat and go and hide. They turn around and they come back and they kill all the women, the children, every animal, burn everything to the ground, and wipe the entire tribe of Benjamin, in essence, off the map. Now, as I read that this week, and I see this story is absolutely gruesome. It's absolutely gruesome. I come down to chapter 21. Here's where I just really began to push in. The Israelites had vowed at Mizpah, we will never give our daughters in marriage to a man from the tribe of Benjamin. Now the people went to Bethel and sat in the presence of God until evening, weeping loudly and bitterly. O Lord, God of Israel, they cried, why has this happened in Israel? (laughs) Now one of our tribes is missing from Israel. Now when you go to the commentators on this section, Tim Keller, for example, who we're following, this is what they're going to tell you. Here's a quote from him. It is easier to put God in the wrong than to engage in self-reflection. That's where they talk about this because they point out that they're going to God, they're crying out to God like, God, come on, what what is up? And instead of just stopping and saying, man, what have we done to contribute to this? So that is a true point. We can preach that. I would challenge you. When stuff happens in your life, what do you do? And it's scary how often we begin to shift focus and put the blame out there and put the blame on God and everywhere else. Yet I want to pause and I want to wrestle with something. God did tell him to do it, did he not? No, he didn't direct the people to rape the girl. He didn't direct the Levite to cut her up into 12 pieces. But when you push into the war and the genocide that unfolds, God told them to do it. Now, we don't ever read God's direct statement to wipe the tribe out, but we read God saying, go take Benjamin on. Now, I wrestled with this all week. This is where I had the most problem with this text. See, if you take that part out, it's just simply a depraved story in the scriptures. It's just simply showing how messed up we humans can get when we leave God out. But God plays a role. I don't know about you, but when I come to passages like this, and I'm used to hearing God preached on in a, in a, in a nature of he is love, he is gracious, he is kind, he is, and, and I wrestled, and I wrestled all week, and I'm really like, what do we do with this? And every answer I turned to, I pulled commentators off, I got online, and everything I read kind of came off to me like this Sunday school answer, but it never really touched the skeptic heart that was deep inside of me. Basically, I was saying, God, I have a problem with what you did here. I have a real problem. I want to, so I did what I, I practiced what I preached last week. I stepped in and I wrestled with God. I said, God, I don't like this. Help me understand. I don't, I don't get you. I don't get you at all. <laughs> what do we do with this? So I began to wrestle and I did some crossroads. I want to show you the answer that I came to was actually comforting in a strange way. Here's Hosea chapter 9. This is years later, hundreds of years later. 
This is now the prophet Hosea talking to the tribe of Israel, talking to the people, saying, hey, a prophet is someone who's coming to deliver a word for God. And Hosea has a message saying, you guys are like a prostitute. You're running off and cheating on your lover, who God being, God being the husband in the, in the kind of the story that's told and, and the people of Israel being like the prostitute. You're cheating on your lover. He wants this undivided relationship with you, and you need to come home to him. He's a jealous God. Come back to God. In that context, here's one of the things that Hosea says. The things my people do are as depraved as what they did where? Where? Here it is. He's referencing back to this event. Gibeah is the town where the men knocked in the door and said, bring out, we want to have sex with your visitors. And that's where the the girl was raped and, and treated awful all night long. So they're depraved as what they did in Gibeah long ago. God will not forget. He will surely punish them for their sins. Ah, oh, that's interesting. Okay, so he's punishing the people, and I, okay, something still wasn't setting. Flip the page. Hosea chapter 10. It's going to get referenced again, and this time, God gives, it's like, it's like I'm, you ever read the scriptures, and you're asking these questions, like, bang, they're the answer. It just jumped off the page. The Lord says, oh, Israel, ever since where? There it is again. So God is looking back at this time to preach to the current hundreds of years later. Ever since Gibeah, there has been only sin and more sin. You have made no progress whatsoever. Was it not right that the wicked men of Gibeah were attacked? So when I read that, I'm like, it's like God, you ever read the past, you feel rebuked? It's like God saying, Adam, was it not right that those men paid? Adam, was it not right but I'm like, but God, the whole, the whole tribe? Really, the whole tribe's got to go. Now, look, we'll continue reading. Now, whenever it fits my plan, we're going to talk about this, my plan. He has this plan. We've been talking about this throughout Judges. God has this redemptive plan. He's working it. I will attack you. Oh, okay. I will call out the armies of the nations to punish you for your what? Multiplied sins. Turn to the person next to you and say Multiplied. I mean, you didn't do it. I saw you. That's okay. I won't make you do it again. Multiplied sins. This is when it really began to come home for me. This is when a comfort set in. So I read this. There's a part of me that comforted me. There's another part that created this sense of awe, and I'd even say a healthy fear. The comfort. You know, I'm really glad... I'm glad God punished the act. You should be too. God is a just God. That's a good thing. He can be predictable. We know what's going to happen. Evil will not be left go. It will not be left go and punished. The scales must balance in God's economy, and that's good. I'm not sure I could worship a God who didn't punish that act in Gibeah hundreds of years earlier from this passage. More than that, go to the multiplied sins piece. I find it very interesting. If I go back to the father of the Jewish people, the father of Israel, who is Abraham, when the whole nation is started, Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, reads this way. In the fourth generation, this is God talking to Abraham. You're going to be a blessed people. You're going to bless all the people. You're going to have the promised land. But not now, not now, not now. You can't have it yet. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. In the meantime, you're going to be in slavery. 
You're going to be in slavery in the nation of Egypt. And and in in 400 years, you're going to come back. Why can't I give you the land now? God says why. For the sin of the Amorites, who currently had the promised land, has not yet reached its what? Full measure. Multiplied sins. Full measure. Same concept. We see God do this all throughout the scriptures. We look at God and think, God, you're so slow. Why are you not making them pay? Why don't you give me the promised land today? God says, God says, no, 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 no. It hasn't reached its full measure yet. God works this way all throughout the scriptures. He lets sin ride out. He lets it go. Romans chapter 1, go study that as you see it. He says, I'm going to let you go to your devices. And over time, sin gets worse. So one thing I want to say, there is a stark difference. You know, people will say sin is sin is sin. No, that's false. When my kids tell me a little lie about what they were doing on their devices, it's a far different sin than raping and abusing a young lady all night long. They're not the same thing. Are they both wrong? Absolutely. But is there a difference? Yes, there is. And when evangelical Christians stand up and say, well, your little white lie put Jesus on the cross, it did. But there's a far difference from the little white lie and what we happen, we've seen maybe where, where a, a CEO ex, it kind of pulls all kinds of money out of the company and makes thousands of people pay because of his sins and his greed. Both lying, both manipulating, both hiding, but there's a radical difference. God says, listen, when the sin multiplies, when it finally gets up to a point, we, I can't know. This is the cool thing. Second Peter chapter uh, 3, so this way, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promises as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. You know, when you go to Gibeah, when, I, when, when it is that bad, where you're saying, you know, it's th- this place is so unsafe, you hang out in town, I can tell you what's going to happen to you. The sins have multiplied. God didn't rush to that act. He wants people to repent. Romans chapter 12, I'll make it personal. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. So here's what I would say. Here's what comforted me. I heard God say, Adam, can you trust me? My plan? What I see that you don't get? Can you leave my righteous anger to me? And can you lay it down? Adam, can you stop being the judge and jury and executioner? Adam, can you trust me to the point where you let bitterness go and let me deal with it? And I'd ask you the same questions. What we see happen in Gibeah, we should celebrate. You say, what? God is a just God. He will not allow multiplied sin go on forever. We can trust him that he's working it into his plan. I don't fully know all the time. Now, at the same time, it scared me a little. Here's why. I sin. I don't have a concubine. I've not raped anyone. I'm not telling lies that lead to genocide, nor am I encouraging the execution of an entire people group. Yet I sin. And I wonder, I wonder if I take it a little bit too light. How serious do you take your sin? I wonder, coming back to last week, as I was wrestling with this question all week, God, why would you do this? I had to step back and say, well, is my image of God accurate? 
Remember I said last week how we begin to shift our view of God out of our emotional responses? Mind-wise, written by, I'm reading this book right now. I, I, this is a quote. I'm just, I was working on this message, and I'm reading this book, and really good book, and I'm written by, I believe he's an atheist. I'm pretty sure he, he says enough that I know he's not a God-fearing man. I, I can tell you that. Um, brilliant book, brilliant writing, uh, and he's writing and talking about the studies that he's done. He's trying to disprove God in some way in this writing, but he's saying, all of my studies show this. If God is a moral compass, then the compass seems prone to pointing believers in whatever direction they are already facing. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying the very thing I said last week. We have this tendency to create God in our own image. Very few of us worship a God that thinks different than we do. Atheists point to this all the time to say that's why God doesn't exist. Because if God really exists, he wouldn't always think like me. Uh, Another one, um, Scott McKnight, who's this uh, he's a brilliant New Testament thinker, and he says this, even though, we, even though we like to think we're becoming more like Jesus, the reverse is probably more the case. We try to make Jesus like ourselves. To one degree or another, we all project onto Jesus our own image. Now, he derives that because as students come into his classes, for the, for, they kind of walk into class, he does a little test with them. He asks them a bunch of questions. I'll give you some of the questions they ask. You're supposed to say, what does Jesus think like? Okay, so here's some of the questions. Well, how would you answer this? Does Jesus' mood often go up and down? Yes or no? What do you think? Put it in your mind. Does Jesus' mood often go up and down? Is he a talkative person? Yes or no? Would being in debt worry Jesus? Would Would Jesus take drugs that may have strange or dangerous effects? Does Jesus prefer to go his own way rather than act by the rules? And he has a whole pile of questions. And then what he does, which is so fascinating, he, 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 the students then go into another section where they answer some questions that distract them from the questions they just answered. And then you come back in and he asks all those questions again, but this time, instead of answering how Jesus thinks, guess what he's asking? How do you think? So then you go down through and say, are you a talkative person? Does your mood go up and down? And what he finds year after year after year, guess what? How you act is the same way you think Jesus acts. So when I read this passage this week, I'm wrestling with these questions. I'm like, God, how can you do this? God, what is this? I'm beginning to step back and think, maybe I've projected some things onto God that are more out of my own mind than the holy, righteous, loving, jealous, beautiful God of Scripture. I think it's a tendency for all of us to do. So I'd ask this, when was the last time you heard God say no to you? When was the last time you changed your view on something significant, whether it be a social issue or a theological opinion, after reading and studying the scriptures? Some of you go, well, I've never done that. I say that tongue-in-cheek, but there are many that don't. When is the last time you repented, truly repented, That's a word that I even get accused of at times for scrubbing out of my preaching. But the scriptures say repent. When's the last time you started with your sin before focusing on their sin? But Adam, you don't get it, what they did. Yeah, but you know, the scriptures, the gospel message says we are first a sinner and only secondarily are we sinned against. When's the last time you addressed the bitterness on your heart before the excuses And why it's understandable that you went and did what you did and are holding what you hold. 
When's the last time you truly loved your enemy? Oh, but Adam, I read Henry Cloud, and I know all about boundaries. Great. It's a great book. Phenomenal biblical teaching. But you got to reconcile. The scriptures say, turn the other cheek, give your coat, love your enemy. When's the last time you practically did that? I go down with stuff that Jesus taught about that I just sit and I look at and I think, when's the last time I took it for what it is and I went and I did it? So the real question I came to grips with is I was wrestling with God this week. Going, I don't want to preach this. God, what is this? This is a mess. What are you doing in here? What do, how do I represent this to people? The real question I came to grips with is, Adam, why are you so aghast at God's justice? My favorite book in all the scriptures, Galatians. It's all about freedom in Jesus. So I love it so much. You are free in Jesus. And free means free. The law is no more. I love it. I love preaching it. And I get to Galatians 6. Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You always harvest what you plant. In a book all about freedom, God ends by saying, hey, be careful. Careful, there's still justice, and justice will be executed. You will harvest what you plant. When the sins multiply and it gets gruesome enough, I'm going to have to step in, and we're going to curb this thing. Now, the rest of the story, I don't have time to end because I want to go to communion, but the rest of the story is powerful. The rest of the story, um, the rest of the story, um, it's kind of sick, actually. Uh, the, they're like, the, the people are thinking, oh, my goodness, look what we did. We wiped out one of our tribe. This can't be, but we've made a vow, so we can't go against our vow. Oh, my word, what do we do? I got it. Let's tell the Benjamites to go and kidnap some women so we're out of this whole thing and take them home to be their wife. Now, think about how this whole story got started because of, because of a young lady who got raped And now here they are saying, hey, go kidnap and take them to rape them. They're your wives. Go. They're yours. I mean, I think the the, the twisted nature of this story is just crazy. And then just like that, the story ends with verse 25. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Now that ends, wow, okay. But if you look in your Bible, what's the next book of your Bible? Let me shut it already. Sorry. I know we're wrapping up. You heard me say that. You're like, ha shut this thing. Let's move on. What's the next book of your Bible? Ruth. When did the story of Ruth take place? Some of you know your scriptures. During the period of the judges. The books are meant to be read in tandem. I think if we'd write this all over again, we'd jump right into Ruth now. But we have some other series coming. Uh, but Ruth is meant to be studied with judges. It happens in the exact same period. So it was fascinated when I flip over, flip over with me to the back of Ruth. So judges ends. They did right in. There's no king. They did right in their own eyes. They did whatever. They did whatever the heck they wanted to do. Come to the end of Ruth. Ruth ends very different. But it's in a stark parallel. Look at verse 16. Of chapter 4. Naomi took the baby. I don't, I don't I wish I could lay the story out and what's happening here. But Naomi took the baby and cuddled him to her breast. And she cared for him as if he were her own. The neighbor women said, now at last Naomi has a son again. And they named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. Parallel that with Parallel that with Judges. 
there was no king. You continue, it lays, out, uh, it lays out the genealogy now. Verse 18, this is the genealogical record of the ancestor of Prez. Prez was the father of Hezron. It goes all the way down to the very last verse. And Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. And who comes from David? Jesus Christ. I love it. I look at that passage and I'm like, Yes. Stark parallel between judges. And here's what I would say as we go to communion. We must look to the greatest king or we will always serve a false one. Is Jesus enough for you? I mean, the promise is there is coming a savior, David, in the line of David, in his lineage, that will save his people from their sin, from this mess and this carnage. So that's why we do communion this morning. I'm going to pray. The ushers are going to come forward. And what communion is, it's just taking some elements, bread that represents the body of Christ, grape juice, which represents his blood. It's just taking those elements and stopping and saying, it's because of what Jesus has done, period, that my sins are forgiven. So that I don't have to face that wrath of God. My sins are forgiven. God looks at me now as holy and blameless as I, as I embrace Jesus and believe in him. And communion, to commune means it is, it's an intimate fellowship. It's a, it, to commune is to sit with someone and exchange intimately thoughts and ideas. In other words, it's not just calling God God, it's saying Father. And we get to do that because of Jesus. And then we don't have verses like, and there was no king, and the people did what's right in their own eyes. Instead we read, man, there is Jesus, and we follow him. The desire of our heart. So I'm going to pray. The ushers are going to come. They're going to pass out the elements. Hold on to those elements, and then we'll come back together and partake of them together. God, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for your grace and mercy. God, I pray that I did justice to this story. Um, I still wrestle a little bit. I'm not going to lie. There's still peace in me that ah, struggles with what you did there uh, and how you directed the people and where you stepped in. But God, I trust you. The one thing I can know is I trust your justice. God, I trust that I'm a sinner. I trust that you're holy and there's things that I just fully can't get my head around. But God, more than anything, God, I'd pray right now throughout this time that all of us in this room would just stare down first and foremost, I'm a sinner before I'm sinned against. And God, would you just let us push in on that during this moment of communion and let us just come to grips with the beauty of Jesus and his grace and mercy and forgiveness. If there's anyone in this room that's never accepted Christ, God, Man, I pray that now, through this time, they would take that step and put their faith and trust in the person of Jesus. For those of us that have, God, I pray that we not live with fear, waiting for that judge to come and beat us up like Gibeah. But God, we'd say, man, God, you're beautiful. I love you. I repent of my sins and I chase after you. God, ignite our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.